things in your son's name. Amen. Thank you. I, uh, I really appreciate um, me and Jeff were talking how nervous we both are. And Jeff responded with, I'm a background person. And I have to tell you, like for before Jeff, there, you know, Melly functioned in that primary role. And Melly was really doing it by herself for a while. And Jeff has really helped expedite. He's really efficient. And I, I really appreciate his hard work. So make sure to tell him thank you for his hard work. I, I am Alex. I am not an elder as well. Um, um, our elders are enjoying a much-needed little break, um, and I think it's really awesome that each of them are kind of just taking a break and enjoying some time with family. I, I always commend our elders because they, you know, we, we, have, a, we have a hop in church. You know, we, we're, we're busting at the seams at about four or five hundred, and we have four guys who primarily take, take care of all the shepherding, and that's, that, that's a lot to ask. And so make sure to... Um, to you know, encourage them, build them up, pour into them, love on them, because they need that. Like I said, my name is Alex, and uh, I have a beautiful picture of my lovely family. Um, I know it's a great picture, isn't it? Like, right? Yeah. Like, and they're all like kind of smiling, except for the boys when I act tough, right? But, but yeah. So, um, so the, this is my family. I have uh, five wonderful kids, um, and my wife and I. We, uh, you guys are blessed because within the last three weeks, you get two missionaries to come share God's truth with you. Um, and uh, I'm excited. But with that said, um, my wife and I serve as campus ministers here in Guam. We get the blessing of serving on U the campus of UOG. And I want to take a moment. I told Kevin I was going to do this. Um, I just want to take a moment and thank you guys. Um, this past Thanksgiving, we, with the help of Baby, we were able to bless the socks off of uh, the UOG dorm students. Many of the dorm students don't get the privilege to go home. And so for Thanksgiving, on Thanksgiving Day, we, uh, we received many, like over 21 pies from different individuals, members of Bayview. We received turkeys. I got the deep fried turkeys with my brother Mark and Addie. It was fun. It was a lot of frying of turkeys. I felt like a layer of grease was on my skin. I, I feel like I needed two showers afterwards. But, but we deep fried some turkeys. Um, next year, we'll be selling them for $200 each. I'm just kidding. No, I'm joking. But um, we deep fried some turkeys. It was awesome. And then uh, we also, someone from our church donated uh, uh, um, mashed potatoes or gravy, four pans of it. And so we were able to go to UOG. And so normally at UOG, you, you have two tables. They normally just have two. But because of the food we brought, they had to have two more tables. So we, I mean, those kids had food for weeks. And uh, my, favorite, my favorite thing, though, is watching them, all the desserts, because normally desserts wasn't, like, they'll get cookies, right, from the, the, the company that provides the meal. But they, we brought fresh-made pies. And you would see students grab a whole pie and just bring it to the table. I mean, they just loved it so much. So thank you again for your support. And we're excited. God's doing some cool stuff. And if you want to hear more about that, you can talk to my wife, because uh, I'm, I'm already talking up here. You don't want to hear more from me. So with that said, um, today I get the uh, benefit of talking about um, stewardship. Every year, um, Pastor Kevin goes through a stewardship series. Um, and before we get started, um, and the theme for this, uh, for this series, he's using treasure hunters. And he asked me to jump on in. Um, and we're, I'm really, actually, I'm actually excited. I, last time I shared with you guys, I was terrified. And even the first service I shared, I'm a little nervous. But I'm actually excited to share with you guys because I think, I think there's a lot to be said. I'm not, I'm not a paid staff member of Bayview. And so, like, I'm, I'm asking you guys to give money and be honest with you, I'm one of the people that give. So like, it's not like I'm with you in it. And so that's just, you know, one of those awesome things. And we'll talk more about that. But before we get into this idea of stewardship, I want to talk about the heart of stewardship, what stewardship looks like. So I don't have a slide for this, but I want to go back to my family slide real quick, if you can go back to my family. I, I want to help you guys understand stewardship. And stewardship is not a common thing. Like, if, I, if, I, if we would talk about money, we wouldn't use the word stewardship with money. Like, I just, I don't think many of us would. We might use budget. We might use, you know, like, you know, allocating, you know, like, I don't know. You use other words when you talk about how to handle money. So when Kevin uses stewardship, me and him got into many conversations. I, I shared with him that I think stewardship is a much bigger principle. And Kevin shared last week these seven principles that I'll show you in a little bit. But the reason I have my family here is because I have five kids. And I think the best way to picture stewardship is each of them different range, but my two oldest are very close to graduating high school. Hopefully not sooner than later, because it's really sad, right? But 
all of us, if you have kids or you, all of us were kids, there's a point in time where you kind of like walk on your own. Like, you know, this idea that as an infant, you're holding them, you're feeding them, you're nurturing them, and, and you're, you're taking care of their every need. And then when they become a toddler, you're showing them, don't touch this, do this. You know, you're, you're holding their hand and walking them along, and then you keep on holding their hand, and the next thing you know, you're not holding their hand, but you're walking alongside them, and the next thing you know, you're looking at their back as they go up. And it's amazing how, like, you think that you are the parent of that kid. That kid, you created that kid. You know, happened one magical night between you and your wife, you know, like, right? You created that kid. Um, and, and, and in some ways, that kid is yours, but the truth is, he's, they're not. My son and my daughter, who are soon to leave, they're not. They're their own. Actually, let's go even further. They're God's. And God is going to take them and put them somewhere in the world, and you hope and pray that everything you taught them, everything you did and invested in them, the time, the energy, you hope and pray that it was enough to give them a foundation that they can walk confidently out in that world. But the truth is, man, they're God's, not ours. So stewardship is really, and that, that's what stewardship is. It's like, it's like God is giving you something, and he's asking you to take care of it for a little bit, and at some point in time, he's either going to take it back or he's going to take you away, <laughs> one of the two, but he's going to take it back. And, and the question is, what did you do with what God gave you? And there's a, there's a bunch of passages in Scripture that talk about that, but I want to give you guys the idea. I want to set the foundation of stewardship as we go into this idea of being the contented hunter. So we, we're on the treasure hunter theme, and today I'm talking about being content as a hunter. But I'm going to be kind of going the opposite direction. And so, the real opposite direction. But before we go, I want to show you the principles that Kevin um, and Bayview has kind of, the, the principles of stewardship that he has talked about. And we just covered the first one, God owns everything, not us. And I, you have to remember that. Because the truth is, God owns you. And what's funny is that we have this tendency to think that, no, no, I, I, I'm good. I can build my own kingdom. I can do my own thing. I control my destiny. The world tells us the opposite, right? You know, be you. You know, live your life now. You know, follow your heart. This whole idea of building your kingdom. And realistically, it's the opposite of understanding that God owns everything. God cares about the heart of the giver, which is something that we're really going to focus on today. God takes, care, God takes the time to consider their response. God's people give significantly to where they worship. God's stewards live with an open hand. God's stewards give freely and cheerfully and sacrificially. And today we're going to talk a little bit about this. Actually, we want a lot about the idea that I don't think that God's stewards can give freely, cheerfully, and sacrificially without allowing God to be the king of the heart. Because giving starts with the heart. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But let's continue. God gives, God gives his way. God giving to God is his way of providing for you. Giving to God is his way to providing for ministry. But before we get into it, I want to read the passage that we're going to be focusing on. I have it here somewhere, and then we're going to jump into prayer, and then we'll come back. So, yeah. <clears throat> so, yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if you have, any, if you have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. The love of money is, not, is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people craving money have wandered from the truth and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Let's pray. God, I thank you that your truth is sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, I pray now that, actually, as the song said, Holy Spirit, come now and fill us, Lord. May it be your word that drives us to change, Lord. May it be your word that as we leave, Lord, it's the thing that motivates us to proclaim your truth. God, I thank you again for your truth and your word. Let my words and my thoughts be of you, Lord. You know, I pray. Amen. I love Harry Potter. I'm a big Harry Potter fan. And I think some people, some people, you know, my wife was like, don't talk about Harry Potter too much, you know, because, you know, churches and witchcraft. Man, I'm sorry. I'll be honest with you guys. Harry Potter is really cool. The creativity of it, but it's great. But my family is in it. We always debate. We always debate the idea of which Harry Potter book is more significant. 
And the truth is, regardless of what you believe is the best book, God blood of fire, um, what book is the best, um, the, the reality is that you really can't have any context of understanding the Harry Potter series without the first one, the OG, the original book. The original book does an amazing job of establishing the characters. And the scene I want to captivate you guys, if you haven't seen it, it's okay. But if you have seen it, you'll remember this. It's so vivid. You have Harry Potter, who's an orphan, living with his aunt, his aunt and their family, the Dursleys. And you have this scene where you have this chunky guy with this little hat, running, kid, running up and down the steps. You know, just up and down the steps. And then the camera pans into this little room under the stairs, the cupboard under the stairs. And you have this dust falling on this guy with glasses, Harry Potter. And you have it falling. And, it, and Harry Potter's bedroom was the cupboard under the stairs. But his, his, his cousin is stomping up and down the steps. He's like, wake up, Harry. Wake up. It's my birthday. Wake up, Harry. And then he, the scene runs into the kitchen. And he's like, mom, dad, it's my birthday. Where are my presents? And he runs in, and he goes, how many presents do I have? And his dad proudly announces, 36. I counted them myself. And it's amazing, because the reaction is like, wow, 36 presents for an 11-year-old? What? I wish I got 36 presents, right? But, you know, 36 presents. And, you know, and so he counts them, and he goes, 36? I got 37 last year. He loses it. And, and the family kind of just tries to make up for it. They're like, oh, well, we'll go to the store and get you two more to make up for the other two presents, blah, blah, blah. And, it, and it's just an amazing depiction of Dudley and his family and this greed monster. The young boy who wasn't satisfied with what he was given was so greedy that he demanded that he get more than last year. And, and what's funny is that if you fast forward to the rest of the books, go to the end. At the very end, in the book, that, uh, the, oh my gosh, I can't, forgive me, people on Facebook, I totally forgot the name of, Deathly Hallows, wow. Okay, if you go to the last book, right, if you go to the last book, you have this scene, right, where Harry Potter has to leave his house, right, and the Dursleys have to move out as well because Harry's in danger. And the dialogue between the Dursleys and, and within themselves and Harry is not that Harry's in danger and they're concerned for him. But it's more about the house that they're leaving that they've grown up in. Even their family, they didn't care about others. They just cared about themselves. They cared about their need and that house and everything that they own, they're leaving behind. They were, and the movie does a quick glimpse of them mourning and then looking back at the house and then walking to the car and leaving. There was no concern for Harry at all. And I find that fascinating because, as Kevin said, greed is a monster. And greed has this weird tendency. If you remember the quote that Kevin said from Tim Keller, that hell's going to be filled with Christians who were consumed with greed. It can sneak up on you, and you won't even know it. There's a funny illustration about this dog walking down. He's walking along the ravine, and he, and he has a huge piece of steak, and he's really excited. And he looks to the right where the ravine is, and he sees his reflection with this steak, and he, and he goes after the stake in the ravine, all the while losing the stake that he had. But he was, so con he, he, he was so greedy that he wanted that stake too, that he lost it all. And I think greed has this tendency for us to want, to want. And it's about us, and it's about me. And the world feeds that. Think about it. I mean, it tells your heart. Like, think about the saying, follow your heart. Man, how deceiving is that? Right? Be true to yourself. What? I mean, think about it. Your, this concept of your heart, is, is it, which could be so misleading and, and so devious because I'm telling you, I'll share with you guys a little later, I followed my heart and bought something that I shouldn't have bought. Right? I've done that many times, <laughs> quickly to return it. Right? But the truth is, it's like, you know, like where, where does that concept of, you know, like the world is constantly inundating us to be the king of our hearts, or to not let Jesus be the king of our hearts. Because I promise you, when you look at scripture, man, Jesus tells people to sell the possessions a lot. And so we open up this idea of greed. But there's a whole lot more happening in this passage specifically that I really want, I want to, I want to share with you guys. So if you go back to the passage, if you go back to the passage, this is, this is whole concept of the whole 
and I want to share with you guys, I'm not going to do this whole exegetical. Kevin does an amazing job of trying to go verse by verse. I'm not going to go verse by verse, but what I am going to do is kind of cover chunks like birth 6 through 8 and then 9 through 10. And I'm going to focus on some words, but I think the reason I chose the New Living Translation is because I think it really brings to heart what they're trying to say here. And so if you have the ESV, it says a couple of different words, but the difference, like, like verse 6 at the beginning, it says but on the ESV, but it says yet. But yet's a transitional word. So there's something at the beginning of that, like you don't, say, you don't start a sentence with yet. There's something before that that makes you wonder, like what is Paul talking about? So I thought it would be best to go back and look at what Paul's talking about. And so let's, Mike, if you can go ahead and go to the next slide. So this is verse 3 through 5, and this is important that you guys understand this. The whole book of Timothy is mostly about Paul trying to encourage Timothy on how to lead his church. And this is chapter 6 now, and so this is like the final exhortations like, hey, be careful of this, be mindful, encourage this, do this. And there's this section here about this whole idea of money, but he, but he, he jabs in here real quick this whole deceptive person. So let's read it. Some people may contradict our teachings, but these, but these are wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. These teachings promote a godly life. Anyone who teaches something different is arrogant and lacks understanding. Such a person has an unhealthy desire to, to quibble over meaning of the meaning of words. This stirs up arguments ending in jealousy, division, slander, and evil suspicions. These people always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt, and they have turned their backs to truth. To them... A show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. I find it funny. I highlighted on purpose to them a show of godliness is a way to become wealthy. I think that's really like, so, so Paul's trying to warn Timothy that there's people most likely in the church that have this, have this mindset that, hey, I'm godly, but I'm, I, I'm going to use it as a, a means to an end. I, I just don't want to be godly for godliness sake. I don't want to be godly because God wants me to be godly. I'm going to be godly because it gives me power and authority. Does that sound familiar? I promise you, if you think hard enough, Kevin talked about it last week, but that's the rich young ruler, isn't it? The rich young ruler had this amazing setup, right? He, like, think about it. His title alone, he was rich. Some texts call him young, so I say under 50. That's right. So, so he's rich, under, under 50. <laughs> um, there's all these young people that are like, you know, 18 to 25 right here, and they're like, oh, 30 is old. What are you talking about? Anyway, but so, so rich, young, and he had authority over stuff, right? So like he had this authority and this ability to, 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 to exhort like, hey, you do this, right? He, he had authority. And so there was a concept, there was a mindset that his title alone demanded some respect. And yet he comes to Jesus, and we'll go to the passage of the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus. I'm skipping a little bit ahead. I'll come back to it, Michael. Don't worry about it. Um, he comes to Jesus, and it reads as follows. Once a religious leader asked Jesus a question, good teacher, what should I do to inherit life, eternal life? And Jesus goes, why do you call me good? Jesus asked him, only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your mother and father. The man replied, I've obeyed all these commands since I was young. When Jesus heard his answer, he said, there is still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But when the man heard this, he became very sad, for he was very rich. When Jesus saw this, he said, how hard is it for, a rich, for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That, that's a tough teaching. I mean, I could go on. We can spend a whole sermon talking about this whole concept of that illustration of a camel, eye and the needle, and we could talk about just this passage alone, I think really could be a sermon. But do you realize that the rich man had, had everything? He did, but he wasn't satisfied. So that brought me to think, what does it mean to be content? Because don't forget, I said, so, so go back. I'm making Micah jump all over the place. Go, go back two more slides to the one more. Yeah, so to them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. This rich man, 
was trying to become more godly. He wanted to attain eternal life. So he, he saw it as another aspect of attaining wealth. But Paul is warning him, if you go to the next slide, Paul's warning him is yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. What does it mean to be content? What does contentment mean? And so I, I, I kind of wrap my head around this. I'm like, what, what does it mean to be content? And so I'm going to share a quote real quick that's really cool. It's from Epicurus. Um, and um, he's, he's quoted as saying, To whom little is not enough, nothing is enough. Give me a barley cake and a glass of water, and I'm ready to rival Zeus for happiness. And when someone asked him for, a secret of ha- for the secret of happiness, his answer was, And not, add not to man's possessions, but take away from his desires. So I looked, at, I looked at what contentment means, and I thought that was really profound. And I came up with two, basically two concepts. The first one is really the meaning, the definition as per Oxford, the state of happiness and satisfaction. And I'm like, oh, that's a good meaning. But we don't use the word contentment really in a sentence, right? Like, I mean, I've never used it until Kevin really, until I read it there, and then Kevin mentioned it. I, I use, you know, oh, I'm content. Oh, I'm really satisfied. I'm full. But then I really thought, what are other ways to describe the word contentment in sentences? And then I laughed, and I was like, this idea of restfulness, fulfillment, gratification. And then it hit me. In what areas of our lives, can, in our financial lives, can we say that we, are, we, we experience restfulness? This idea of peace and calm. And whatever, what areas of life financially, or maybe just in general, can we say we're full of gratification, that we are grateful for everything that God has given us? And what area of our lives can we honestly say that we have fulfillment? I think that the truth of the matter is, you know, greed slips in there, if you notice, right? Like, restless night of sleep because you can't pay the power bill. I hit his home. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying those are, that, that, that means you're not content because that's, that's a real scenario, right? Like you're living paycheck to paycheck. My wife and I, I'm going to give you context, my wife and I are missionaries. By definition, we live off the support of others. So if someone decides to stop supporting us, and I'm not trying to be like a pity party here, I'm just being a real picture. If someone decides to stop supporting us, that impacts us in a way, we might not feel it right away, but then, right, we, we, we're like, oh snap, we're we're a couple hundred dollars short this month. And so the reality of living the paycheck to paycheck is very real for us. But, like, I'll confess, there are many nights where there's a restlessness about me. Where I stay up and go, man, where, do I have to get another job? Should, God, do, 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 do I have to go back to Olive Garden? Made a lot of money at Olive Garden. That's a yeah. Anyway, but, you know, like, the, the, the reality of, you know, that, that, that's a real struggle. This idea, Lord, man, how can I be grateful when I'm living paycheck to paycheck, God? This is hard. And so greed creeps itself in ways that, I'll be honest with you, like, I think, I think it's really true that when we, when we let, allow that greed monster to sneak in, it comes in such subtle ways and it beds itself in our heart that sometimes we need a reality check. And today, I hope this is that. Because I, I want you to I'm gonna say it over and over again. Giving starts with your heart. So, so we have this rich young ruler, and, he, and to be honest with you, I, it breaks my heart, but he's, an, he's a hot mess, right? Let's just be honest. He, he's a hot mess. He goes away sad. And, and the funny part is that Jesus notices it, right? And, and then he turns around and goes to his disciples. It's harder for a rich man, right? Like his response to the man's sadness was that it's going to be really hard for rich people to go to heaven. And so I sit back and think, you know, and I'm going to share with you guys some stats. But like everyone aspires, like, you know, my mom, and my mom's watching on Facebook, but my mom was a single mom from when I was 13 and up. My mom had to work most of the time two jobs. And man, I didn't help her in that process, right? I was a defiant punk of a 13-year-old, man, in every way possible. I even had a job and made money, but I never helped her, right? So because I, I loved having money. But I still remember, like, thinking to myself, when I get rich, I'm going to build my mama house. When I get rich, I'm going to, like, this idea that rich, like, this idea of having money can, can meet the needs and deal with some of these problems. But I, I laugh because 
as much as you have a bad example of greed with the, the rich young ruler, I think we have a great example of someone who, who experiences Christ and doesn't walk away sad. And that's Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus is a, a, a different person, right? Zacchaeus is a, um, it's just a cool little story, right? We all sing the song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee, y'all could have sang along with me, hello, you know, but, but you know, this idea of Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, you know, it, it, the passage is fascinating. You have this, this, this tax collector, and it, those of you who have read the Bible, tax collectors were hated. Why were they hated? Because they, under the rule of Rome, were told to tax individuals. And based off of how much earnings you have, you got taxed a certain amount. And some tax collectors would take extra, right? Just because they want to. They saw it as a position of power. And so they would, they would exert more tax, be like, oh, you're talking back to me? Give me five more, right? So this idea, tax collectors were hated. They were not liked people. And so let's go ahead and read the passage. We'll read it together. Once, oh, there it goes again. I always do that. All right. So Jesus entered Jericho, um, entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short and could not see over the crowd, he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree, sycamore fig tree, to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Next. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here, I am, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Holy smokes. The rich young ruler went away sad, right? But Zacchaeus, a rich man, had a worse reputation, you know, wasn't holy like the ruler, right? He wasn't, he wasn't this guy that kept the commandments. He was a tax collector. And when Jesus met him, he responded with, here, take, take it all. Take, take, take half of what I have. And the part that's the kicker that no one, everyone overlooks, he's a tax collector. And he goes, if I've done anyone wrong, I'll pay them four times the amount. Holy smokes, do you realize what Jesus does? When we allow Jesus to be our heart, when we say, I will follow you, he rocks your world. He doesn't just let you sit idly by and just watch it for entertainment. Oh, he healed that blind man. He's like, all right, what are you going to give up for the kingdom? What are you going to give up to follow me? Because I'm telling you, he wants your heart, guys. He wants you. He doesn't want a part of you. He wants all of you. He wants you to be, he wants to be the king of your heart. There is, no, there is no divided kingdom in this whole Jesus world. There is one kingdom, and you have to choose, whether it be today, tomorrow, or maybe on your deathbed, you're going to have to choose who is going to be the king of your heart. Because I believe that giving, you can't give. It is, it is almost self-glorifying. Like if you give and Jesus is not the king of your heart, what, what it is is this. Well, God, I, I, I gave. It's like the two individuals, in, and I think it's Luke 17, Right? The Pharisee goes to the front of the, of the altar. He goes, God, I've given this, I've done this, I've led this. And then you have the tax collector, the, 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 the Gentile, the, the, the horrible person in the back, beating the chest going, I've done what I can. I am not worthy to come to the altar. Because the truth is, what's the point of giving to God what is his if you're not going to give it with your heart? Like God's like, I don't care about what you have. One of my favorite passages in all the scriptures is in Joel. And this idea of sacrifice, and, this, and Joel says, rend your hearts, not your garments. Holy smokes. God wants your hearts. And this whole idea of stewardship is pointless if you don't first acknowledge that God owns all of it. And if you're going to give, start, let it start with your heart. So I want you guys to realize two things, um, actually, no, three things, that there, there is a danger, though, because I, I, I will tell you that Paul doesn't just say these passages. Paul doesn't, let me get there first. Paul doesn't just say this whole idea of, 
of, you know, hey, you know, be content, because he ends it. He ends the passage. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. He doesn't just say be content, right? And don't forget, contentment with godliness is of great wealth. So, so this idea of being pursuing God and being content, it's of great wealth, and it's good. But he doesn't just leave it there for Timothy. He goes on to the second section, and he says, but, but people who long to be rich fall into temptation. And then he goes on and describes some things, and then he ends with this amazing verse, right? He says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith, and pierce themselves with many sorrows. I came across this article, article um, in psychological newspaper. It was a journal, and they, they did a survey of UCLA um, uh, uh, freshmen. Now UCLA has an enrollment of about forty-four thousand students, right? And that's grad as well. But they interviewed about seven thousand students. Of those seven thousand students, seventy-six percent of them said that they're going to school to be rich right? Half of them, about 54% of them, said this. They believe that they're going to be famous through some means of social media. Now, those of you who know a little bit of psychology, there's this intrinsic and extrinsic drives, right? There's, there's this idea of like what drives you intrinsically. Some things drive you intrinsically and some things drive you extrinsically, right? And so like, you know, I, 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 I had to study for education purposes um, these intrinsic and extrinsic motivations, how to motivate a student uh, to learn a language when there is no intrinsic motivation, where there is no desire for within themselves thinking they can do it, right? So there's this aspect of intrinsic and extrinsic materialist, materialism, Right? And so the article goes on, and there's a couple of cool things it says. It says, if children value wealth, fame, and image, they face a greater risk of unhappiness, including anxiety, depression, low self-esteem, and problems with intimacy. You wonder why pornography is such an epidemic amongst people today? I mean, the world today has, taught, has, has told us that God's not enough. We need more. We want more. It, that, that we can be our own gods. We can be our own, our own dominions. We can set our own rules. And, and mind you, these people, they go to school. They're spending $140,000, right? Because if you think about schools, they're averaging about $40,000 a year. And so really, it's like $160,000, right? So $160,000 they're spending. Even if they get scholarships, that's fine. That's great. But they're spending $160,000 just in hopes to be rich. And on top of it, of these 7,000 students, half of them believe that they're going to gain it through a, a, an aspect of fame or this image. Man, imagine how defeating that is when they don't accomplish that. The article goes on and talks about this extrinsic materialism. It goes, materialistic goals are associated with being less empathetic and cooperative and more manipulative and competitive. And it, goes, it gets a little you know, worldly here, but it, it's, it gets to the point. The more people care about militaristic goals, the less they care about ecological sustainability and more their lifestyles tend to have a damaging effect on the planet. And then it says this, however, if children value relationships, a meaningful life, extrinsic, like, like intrinsic aspects, right, internal stuff, um, meaning life, helping others that tend to have increasing well-being, like, sorry, however, if children value relationships, a meaningful life, and helping others, they tend to have um, increased well-being, a happier, and are happier, and experience lower levels of depression and anxiety. I mean, this idea that if they if they do not look to the world and yearn for what the world has, the fame, the image, the the fortune, and the the the, the me myself and I's, and they stop and say, man, this, there's other people, this extrinsic component, like they they tend to be happier. They tend to experience lower levels of anxiety and less, less depression. Huh. And this is without God, mind you. Like, this is, this is the absence of God. Now, imagine for a normal person who submits to God and says, God, I want you to be king of my heart. I'm going to submit all my finances, everything that I do to you. Imagine how, how different 
that would be. Imagine how much more peace they would have. Imagine how much more joy they would have. Imagine how less of a, and depression's real, mind you, I struggle with it, but imagine how less depressed they might be. You see, this love of money, having money, and believing that money could be like at the center of your heart, that it is the thing that brings you peace and satisfaction, that greed monster, you see, it reveals itself in certain ways. It doesn't, it, 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 and you can catch it if you're, if you're attentive, but it, it shows itself. And I see it in myself more and more. I was reading the book by um, uh, Paul Tripp that Kevin had me read as I got ready for the sermon. And it, and it was funny because even he confesses, you know, Paul Tripp's an amazing man. Writes books on parenting, writes books on spiritual growth. He's a pastor of a church. I respect him tremendously. And even in his book, he confesses that, man, I struggle every day. Every day with this greed monster. And, and mind you, when I say greed monster, I want you to really realize that it's a lack, lack of trusting God, being content with just having food and clothing, as the passage said. So, so I want to focus on the three dangers, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to point them out. So the three dangers. The first one is I deserve. Now, this one's a dangerous one. Barclay, um, Barclay who's an Anglican theologian, wrote way back when he wrote a commentary on this. And he wrote something that's very interesting. The I deserve is this idea that the security which is founded on material things, um, it's just this idea that you have security. And think about this, right? I deserve is a very easy one, right? My wife and I, we work hard, right? My mom worked hard. And I remember the day I asked my mom, I still remember, I wonder if she's watching, I wonder if she remembers this. I remember asking for the Jordans. They were the black suede ones. They came out in fifth grade, so... 1995, maybe 94, um, and uh, no, 19, 1990. Ooh, I'm old. All right, so it so came out 1990, 91, and I remember the blue, black suede Jordans, right? They came in white, and they came in black, and I remember I told my mom I need those shoes, right? And I remember I, I, I used that. I deserve those shoes. I'm a good student. I'm this. I, I, I'm, right? I, I went through this process of justifying why I deserve $170 shoes, Single working mom, y'all. <laughs> and we have, we have, you know, we have three kids. I'm the middle child. And I told my mom I need $170 shoes. Man. But, I mean, let's, 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 let's make it more real, right? You start working, right? You get that first paycheck. Man, I worked hard for this. Man, I, 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 I deserve a night out. Let's go blow my money on a nice new 55-inch TV. Let's go, right? Maybe even bigger, 55 small now, right? 85, let's go, right? Right? And so, and so, right? So, like, this idea that, you know, like, I deserve. And it slips in there so, so innocently. But what's at the expense of, right? You deserve it at the expense of what? I do it to my kids all the time, right? I come home from work. I remember I used to work Chick-fil-A. I work a really long day, 11 to 8. And I'm not saying this to dads so that you feel guilty because I did this all the time. I come home and I would say, I deserve a quiet house. I've been at work all day. I deserve peace in my house. Now stop it and be quiet. You know how many times I yelled that? Mind you, I had babies. <laughs> and that's really hard to tell a baby to be quiet. <laughs> but, but, but the reality is that I deserve it. Like, do you hear how selfish that sounds? It's about my kingdom. It's about me. The other one that's really dangerous is, is I want. I'm going to make a confession here, and my wife and I laughed about this now. But I love ice in my drinks. I love a cold drink. And a couple of you know that cold drinks are just the way to drink, right? Like, what's the point of drinking a hot cup of water? Oh, like... <laughs> I'm not trying to insult some cultures who be like, like when I, I went to a restaurant and they handed me a hot cup of water and I'm like, where's the tea bag? You know, like I'm like waiting for the, but you know, I, I just, I love ice in my drinks, you know? I'm still a believer that hot coffee is hot coffee and iced coffee is like a special treat every once in a while. There's no such thing as iced coffee as a regular drink. You don't do, like, it's hot coffee in the morning, not iced coffee in the morning. But anyway, but I like ice, right? I really do. I like it a lot. And We've been having some issues in our house of our kids filling up the ice tray. You know, they, they, they forget to fill the ice tray. So I told my wife, I was like, I am sick of not having ice. So I bought myself an ice maker. I want an ice maker. I bought it. It was on sale at Home Depot. Guess what? I returned it yesterday. 
my I want superseded my family's needs. My son broke his finger recently, and I'm laughing, right? Had to pay, I think, like $40, you know, whatever, and then we're going to have to see a hand specialist. But I'm kind of thankful every time the ice maker, <laughs> right? Because now I can kind of take care of my son's finger or whatever. But, like, you see, like, my, my wants, when, when I wants proceed or trump, right, other things that might be more important, like, why am I putting, like, I am the king of my heart in those moments. I, I, I control my destiny. I want what I want. I deserve what I deserve, and I'm going to fight for that. You know, but the, the reality is all of these lead up to this, this me-first mentality. And, and Barclay says it this way. The desire for money tends to make people selfish. If they're driven by the desire for wealth, it's nothing to them that someone that has to lose, it's nothing to them that someone has to lose in order that they may gain. I, I've done a lot of research on leadership. I, for one, at one point in my life, I was pursuing a PhD in organizational leadership, and, and I learned so much. And the one thing I did learn, and I've never been a business owner, so for those of you who run a business, I will throw this at you because I haven't been, so there is a side of me maybe throwing stones right now, but if, if you don't value people, then you shouldn't be a leader. I even go far enough that if you haven't felt convicted every time you've had to lay someone off, then maybe you shouldn't be leading people. That burden of having to make someone lose their job, or having, I'm not saying that you don't have to do it, but if that burden is not there, then maybe you care more about your bottom pocket than people. Oh, gosh, I, that's hard for me to say, and I'm not trying. I say it, and I'm like saying it fast because it's hard. I've never been a business owner, but I do see I, I, the headlines that drive me crazy are this. These are the headlines that drive me crazy. Enron lays off, and Enron's, I'm just throwing a scenario. Enron lays off 60,000 people, but the CEO has a 3% increase race. How is that right? How is that right? That you lay off all these people, yet you give the boss a huge raise? And I'm not trying to be the social, social justice warrior, but I do know that leading people is about valuing people. And that greed monster slips in really quick because, you know, there's this thing called, um, <laughs> there's this thing called, um, I forgot the name I, I used. I used this, um, it's like um, materialism inflation, like uh, this, this idea that the more money we get, right, the more money we get, the more our expenses raise, right? And, and it happens. It's psychologically proven that very few people are able to say, hey, I got a pay raise increase, but and are able to keep their expenses. You have to be really disciplined to keep your expenses the same. The people that get their pay increase, it's like, oh, I can afford that new car. <laughs> right? Toyota Corolla, let's go. All right, but, you know, like this idea that, you know, like the more money I make, the more I can afford. When the reality is, for those of the kingdom, the more money I make... Shouldn't it be like, how can I build God's kingdom? And I'm not saying I do that. I'm not, because I'm just as bad, right? Like, you know, ooh, got a pay increase. Let's go. Oh, hey, tax refund. Let's go, you know? I lived in Columbia, South Carolina, and you always knew when there was tax refund season. All the rental companies, they would always say, hey, it's, it's from February, from February all the way to May. They would be booked solid, all the, ta- the car rentals with all the nice cars. Like, if you want to rent a car, you had to rent like an SUV, I mean a, a, a minivan. You couldn't rent like a, any nice car because they would rent, seriously, people would buy or rent these really nice cars in South Carolina. And I just thought it's so funny. It's like the more money we get, the more we, it's like permission to go spend money. And you see the commercials, right? It's the me first mindset. Imagine if just for a moment, the church and all of us, we get a promotion and instead of adding to our expenses, we go, man, you know, God, thank you so much, but I don't need this. <laughs> Maybe if we like Zacchaeus, right? God, here, whoo! Imagine how different the church would be. It'd be it, it, it would just be breathtaking to see the differences we can make. Do you know that Bayview has a Samaritan fund? They have a fund where they, they, they set aside money and they give to people in need. I, I can't imagine how they can help people if... After we budgeted everything, we did everything, next thing you know, they're like, oh my gosh, we have all this reserve because people decided to give and decided to kind of stay within their means. And I mean, imagine. I'm convinced the churches were really good and efficient 
and people were really tithing, I think the church should be the one to eradicate homelessness, right? But anyway, I told you, I'm not trying to be a social justice warrior, you know, but, you know, but I, I, I just, those are thoughts that I ponder. And, and with that said, with that said, I think, I think the mindset of these three, I want you guys to realize this, this is perfect in an autonomous culture, right? With, with the absence of God, the I deserve, I want me first, it is perfect if there was no God. It is perfect if we are the gods of ourselves, that we establish our own kingdom. But the truth is, there is a God, and there's a God that loves you. There's a God that wants your heart, and this has no place in that. I promise you, you fight this, you can continue to fail. You fight this, you'll just be cut at the knees every time. Because God wants your heart. And I sit here, and I'm talking about finances, and I'm laughing, going, I have no place or authority to talk about it. Again, I live off the, 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 the giving of others. I have no like, established 401k. I have no retirement fund. I'm just trusting the Lord to lead me as he does. I, and mind you, I save money, but man, living in Guam doesn't allow you to save money. You, your car breaks down. You're paying out the ear. I mean, like seriously. I mean, so, but the truth is I sit back and I chuckle because God has asked me to share this with you. And this is very much an easy mindset to bear. We all can go, I want, I'll get it. I deserve, I'll get it. Me first, I'll get it. It's easy to do. It's subtle. But this living God that created you and wants your heart, not only does he want your heart, he yearns for it. And so I, 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 I want to share, I want to end with this passage. It's one of my favorite passages that I've come across lately. I mean, it just, it's really kind of amazing. And I'm missing the second page of it. Oh, there it is. So it's, maybe I'll say, it, I don't have it up on the screen because I think it's just a great passage to read. But if you want to close your eyes and listen, but Jesus is doing most of the talking in this. And so I'm not saying pretend I'm Jesus, <laughs> but in a, for the moment, I want you to just think and feel as though you're in that moment as Jesus is talking. He goes, then someone, from, someone calls from the crowd, teacher, please tell my brother to divide out my father's estate with me. Jesus replied, friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such a thing as that? Then he said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Then he told them a story. A rich man had fertile farm that produced fine crops. And he said to himself, why should I do? What, what, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know. I'll tear down my barn and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough to be stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you would die this very night. Then you will get everything you've worked for. Oh, then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. He continues... Then, turning to his disciples, Jesus said, That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food to eat or enough clothes to wear. For life is more than food and your body more than clothing. Look at the ravens. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for God feeds them. And you are far more valuable to him than any birds. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And if you worry... If your worry can't accomplish a little thing like that, what's the use of worrying over bigger things? Look at the lilies and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing. Yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for the flowers that they're here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? And don't be concerned about what to eat and what to drink. Don't worry about such things. These things dominate the thoughts of the unbelievers all over the world. But your father already knows your needs. I'm going to say that again. But your father already knows your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else, and he will give you everything you need. So don't be afraid, little flock, for he gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. 
and the purses of heaven never get old or develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it. No moth can destroy it. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. I don't, I'm not standing here asking you to sell your house. I promise you that. I'm not asking you to sell all your possessions. But I find it fascinating that when Zacchaeus met Jesus, it rocked him, didn't it? So much so that he was like, man, something's got to give. I'm giving Jesus, look. He even said, hey, look, I gave away half, and I'll give back four times to those I've done wrong. telling you Jesus wants your heart and I don't think we'll understand contentment until we give it to him I think we'll, we'll pretend and still want this and that the greed will slip in but I don't think we'll understand contentment until we truly give him our heart I want to end with this little illustration and I have a quote that I want to share but I want to end with this illustration there was this young boy, his father, he was the son of a preacher and he had a birthday party and his birthday he got a lot of money it was a lot of money, we'll say 200 but as he was uh, celebrating his birthday, he goes to church the next day. And, you know, his parents were good parents. They taught him how to tithe, and they encouraged him to tithe his money. And, and it was really cool because the kid's like, okay. And his dad's like, you know, you don't have to give this much. You can give 10%. You can give more if you want. You know, but, you know, whatever you feel, God's, you know, whatever you feel like. And maybe you can get something that you want, you know. And so the little boy, little boy comes to church, and, you know, the offering place. Dad comes. He's finished preaching. The dad sits down, and the offering place coming by. And it comes by the mom, and then it comes to the boy, and the boy takes out all $200 and puts it in the offering plate. And the mom's like, but, uh," you know, like this moment of what's happening. And the mom, you know, looks at him and goes, you don't have to do that. And the little boy looks at his mom and goes, mom, but I I don't need it. I have a dad who take care of everything I want and need. I really do think it starts with faith like that, right? Childlike faith of trusting that God will provide every need. I don't, I'm not saying that the struggle is not real. The struggle is there. I've been there, done that. As a, as a kid, we, my mom worked really hard to make sure we had bread on the table, right? But man, guys, I'll tell you, there's, there's a reality where I think so many times we try to control our own destiny. We try to control our own, our own, our own way and direction. When God's just like, man, just give me your heart. Let me lead you. So I end with this quote from Paul Tripp. It's really convicting. A better budget won't help, you, won't help me if, not, if, this, if something rules my heart other than God. A better budget won't help me if something rules my heart other than God. Our financial woes and troubles and even like this idea of giving, it's, it's, it's frivolous, it's pointless. If God's not the king of our hearts. So if you want to be content, if you want to be the contented treasure hunter, right? Then it starts with giving your heart. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you love us deeply. God, I I thank you that you do provide our every need. And it might not be sometimes the way we want it. But Lord, now we, we ask that you would just come and take our hearts Lord, if there is someone here who's never actually experienced this idea of giving their heart to you, Lord, I pray now, Lord, that you would just start moving in their heart. Lord, that they would just submit themselves to you, realizing that you want their heart. And Lord, as we, as we contemplate and go through this series of stewardship, Lord, I pray that we realize that all of it is yours, Lord, and that we can stand before you, Lord, just thanking you, Lord, and, and being faithful with what you're giving us, Lord. It's all yours anyway. God, may we be faithful to give to you what you are worthy of, which is everything. And for that, God, we thank you. In our prayer, amen.